A couple of announcements. Um, disease has taken its toll on this panel, and so there's been a couple of substitutions. Uh, two pieces of good news. Number one, uh, Asla is going to be presenting. Uh, and uh, the other piece of good news is that um, I'm going to be moderating, and since I don't, <laughs> since I am not going to tell Gauze anything that he's not going to turn around and say, who do you think you are, um, basically I'm not going to be saying a lot. So that's the second piece of good news. Um, I want to welcome you to this afternoon's session. We have three distinguished speakers today. Uh, to start off with, we have F. Gregory Gauss III, which is more syllables in a name than. Uh, he's a professor of international affairs and John H. Lindsay, 44 chair in the Department of International Affairs in the Bush School of Government and Public Service, Texas A&M University. And that's the, that's the OK Bush, right, as opposed to the It's evil. the first one, not the second one. Okay. Uh, he also serves as the head of the department. His most recent book is International Relations of the Persian Gulf. Henri Barki is a professor of international relations at Lehigh University and is senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Asla Bali, who probably needs no introduction whatsoever, uh, is professor of law here at UCLA School of Law, faculty director of the UCLA Law Promise Institute for Human Rights, and director of the UCLA Center for Near, Near Eastern Studies. She's a graduate of Princeton and has published widely in law and in other journals. So with that. Howdy. <laughs> no, seriously, that's the way we start talks at Texas A&M. So there's no Aggies out there. So you urban sophisticates here in LA, I just have to tell you that this is, this is the way we start talks at Texas A&M. We say howdy. And it's really, it's, no, 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 that's UT. That's UT. That's UT. So well, when we see that, we say, saw him off. Uh, no, uh, the, uh, the, uh, it's actually very impressive when the president of the university comes out at graduation, to the, one of the seven graduations that our huge university has, to 20,000 people in the basketball stadium. And he says, howdy, and 20,000 people say, howdy, back. It actually is kind of uh, impressive. So uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's, it's great to be here. Um, I was ve I'm very tempted to just say what Mark Lynch said and just stop, because Lynch and I don't really disagree too much on this, and, uh, and that's unusual because I actually think it's, it's good to disagree, and we should have more disagreements in the field, not only because it helps sharpen our, our arguments, but also because it gets us noticed. Uh, fights fights get, get us noticed. So I, I was actually looking for things to fight with Mark with. but. Uh, but I really couldn't, I couldn't find them. But I, I do think, let me just make a couple of comments about, uh, if you will, the systemic approach here that, that emphasizes state weakness. Um, Mark spent a lot of time talking about proxies, and I think that that was extremely important in defining what a proxy is and, and, and what's, a, what's a proxy conflict. Like I would say Yemen's not a proxy conflict because You've got direct military intervention by, by the Emiratis and, and the Saudis. So at least the, you know, there's a proxy element to it, but there's also a direct intervention element. Uh, I, I would like to, and, and there were some really good points brought up about, about proxies, like you know, uh, the difference between 
giving people money in a civil money and guns in a civil war versus giving money to a political party that's running in elections. I mean, it, they're both proxies, but are they different? It's worth thinking about that stuff. I thought that was that was all really important. But I, I, I want to emphasize more this systemic element of state weakness. Now, uh, we're all, at least those of us who are academics, many of us are creatures of our graduate student training and the books that we read during that period. And the big book in IR during that period was Kenneth Waltz's Theory of International Politics, which is all about how to conceptualize structure in a system, in, in an international system. And for, for Waltz, it was all about the distribution of capabilities. Right? He said domestic politics just completely washes out because you know, these units, states, are functionally the same. But I think that, that in this case, in the case of the, of, the, of the Middle East, both now and I would argue if you, in the 40s and 50s and into the, in, and into the 1960s, we should consider state weakness as a, a, as a systemic characteristic because so many of the states in the region were weak vis-a-vis -vis their societies. Now, this is an empirical question, sometimes quantifiable, sometimes not, but it's an empirical question whether the state controls its society or to the extent to which the state controls its borders is, as, as uh, Hara said uh, in, in, the last, in the last presentation, uh, uh, has a, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, the classic definitions of, of what a state is and what a state does, right? The states were not doing, many of the states were not doing that. And to the extent more and more of those states are weak, it, I think, becomes a systemic, a, character of the, a characteristic of the system, not merely of individual members. And, and so the number of political vacuums, as it were, that one, one finds in a regional system enormously affects the character of the international relations of that region. Uh, let me contrast very, very briefly the, the, the 70s through the 90s, a period where I would, would argue that we saw a, a strengthening of states. And I'm not, I, I don't take a normative position on that. Many of the elements of strengthening the state were, were not nice if you lived in that state, right? But the strengthening of states in terms of their control over society. And it's not that things were less violent, but the violence was different. It was state-to-state -state violence, right? This is the period of, of Arab-Israeli wars in the late 60s and early 70s. It's a period of the Iran-Iraq war. It's the period of the, of the, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, and then the, the, the US-led international coalition that that expelled Iraq from Kuwait. These were state-to-state -state wars. And there was also state-to-state -state peace, right? States can also make peace with one another. Uh, uh, much easier, I think, than, than, than non-state actors can. Uh, and so we had the, uh, the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. We had the, uh, the Jordanian-Israeli peace treaty. Uh, and and uh, we actually got relatively close to a Syrian-Israeli peace treaty at the end of the 90s, right? Uh, there was lots of violence, but it was state to state. Whereas I think the 2000s, as, as we've said, beginning very much with the American invasion of Iraq, and then with the, the disruptions that we've seen after the Arab uprisings, uh, it's a different kind of violence, right? It, it's, these political vacuums are, are, they're civil wars, 
we can argue about whether that's the appropriate term, but there's civil conflicts within state boundaries, right? Uh, and, and the number of those, right, gives a particular character to the international system, proxy wars, like Mark talked about. But the other thing that I think is, is extremely important for us to identify as a systemic characteristic here is the importance of transnational identities in the Middle East that mobilize and legitimize these proxy relationships, right? In, uh, this is not to say that in other parts of the world you don't see this, but, but, but a lot of it is under the table. A lot of it is things that you do in secret. You try to deny it. I don't think anybody in the Middle East is denying right, their involvement across borders because well, they ha there are these identities that cross borders that legitimate that. And thus, I think that, that the combination of the importance of these transnational identities, be it Arab, be it Muslim, be it, be it sectarian, be it, be it uh, ethnic like Kurdish or Palestinian, right, that crosses state borders, I think, is a, a, an important systemic element in the Middle East. You add to that right, the collapse of state authority or the weakening of state authority in so many members of the system. And, and you have a different kind of international relations than you had from the 70s to the 90s. So let me talk a little bit about the specifics of what I see now. And I, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here when I say the current crisis in the Middle East is, is not as it is widely portrayed, right? It is not best understood as a sectarian fight between Sunnis and Shia, right? It's not best understood as Saudi Arabia leading the Sunni side and Iran leading the Shia side in a fight for religious dominance that goes back 1,400 years, right? Now, I don't want to deny that I feel a little bit like how to, you know, we, we, I want to hit it in between because people are being killed because of their sectarian identity, right? It's, it's not unimportant to understanding the politics of the region, but I would argue that, that the root cause is not sectarian conflict, but rather the weakening or collapse of state authority across the Arab world, right? This process did not begin with the Arab uprisings, but they uh, uh, accelerated and exacerbated it. Uh, the collapse of state authority opens up political vacuums into which regional and international players have not only intervened, but been invited to intervene by the local actors. And this is, I think, extremely important to, to acknowledge, right? Uh, the outsiders don't fight their way into these conflicts. They're invited in by the local actors who need their help, who want their money, who want their guns, who want their political support. And those outside players, of course, are not limited to Saudi Arabia and Iran. There's Turkey. There's Qatar, there's the Emirates, there's the US, there's Russia to a lesser extent, right? Egypt, Israel, the European states. So in some of these societies where authority has been severely curtailed or collapsed, these societies have divided for specific historical reasons along sectarian lines, and, and Lisa Wedeen explain that process of sectarianization uh, much more eloquently and, and much more cogently than I can, right? And this sectarianism is undoubtedly exploited by Saudi Arabia and Iran. But I would argue it's not caused by them. The roots are local, 
It's a bottom-up phenomenon, not a top-down phenomenon. And Saudi Arabia and Iran, I would argue, are playing a balance of power game. They're playing a balance of power game, perfectly understandable by classic balance of power logic. They're not fighting out some 1,400-year-old religious rivalry. And we know that, that you know, it's, it, sectarianism is not the driver here because we see the same phenomenon in other areas where sectarianism is not right, a salient social divide. Libya, right? We see the same dynamic in Libya, I would argue, as we see in Syria, as we see in Yemen to some extent, as we see in Iraq to some extent. But it's not sectarian, right? When the state collapsed in Libya, people rushed to their corners where they would feel protected and safe and have, have services provided for them that, that the state maybe used to do. Uh, but, but these identities were local, right? They were regional. They were tribal. It's, in some cases, ideological. They weren't sectarian because there's no sectarian deficiency in Libya. But we see the same dynamic in terms of these political vacuums and the outsiders coming in. Right? And we also see it even in these areas where sectarianism is so salient. We talked a lot about the Kurds. Well, why isn't that the Kurds didn't divide between Sunnis and Shia? There's Sunni Kurds and Shia Kurds in, in Iraq. I'm not sure about Syria. I don't know the, the situation, the Kurdish situation in Syria as well. But for specific historical reasons, that ethno-national, ethno-linguistic, whatever you want to call it, identity trumps the sectarian identity in terms of political mobilization, right? As Mark pointed out, and I think he's absolutely right here, in this current configuration of the Middle East regional system, the ability to attract and to mobilize local allies is the most important element of power, right? It's not conventional military power. I don't think anyone thinks the Iranian army is going to come pouring across the border march across Iran and go fight in Syria. No, nobody thinks that, right? And that, and that helps us to understand some of the, the puzzles of the current configuration of international relations. Uh, I would argue that the most powerful military state in the Middle East is Israel. Yet how much influence has it been able to have in these, in these conflicts? Very little, because it cannot establish those relationships with local actors. The Israelis tried in the 80s in Lebanon, we know. Didn't particularly turn out uh, well for them. Uh, but yeah, when you, when you think that Qatar has had more influence over the development of international politics in the Middle East over the last 15 years than Israel, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, what's the nature of power in in the regional international system right now. So Iran has, to, in, my, in my judgment, Iran has to this point gotten the better of the geopolitical contest for influence in the regional crisis. Right? Unlike Saudi Arabia or other outside powers, it has the advantage of being able to deploy its own forces in small numbers, but uh, strategically, the Quds Force, right, into local conflict situations, and more importantly, it has been able to develop a set of loyal local allies and proxies who are willing to act under Iranian leadership and patronage. Now, Saudi Arabia cannot deploy its own forces effectively, and we're seeing that in Yemen. Right. 
and its quote-unquote natural allies hate the Saudis and want to kill them. Right? Right, Joey talked about the, the, the Petro model, which I think is an enormously important thing to think about, right? and the 70s as a turning point in the political economy of the region. But in fact, I think that it, it's, it's interesting to note that, that as important as that was, it hasn't been able to allow the Saudis to convert that, that role, that new role they had, into the ability to win regional fights. I also would push back against some of the, the idea that, that the Saudis have led a counter-revolution in the post-Arab uprisings period. Right? This notion that this is 1848 and the, and the Saudis are, are Prince von Metternich, I think is just, just misreads the situation. Of the six right, regime-shaking crises that occurred in 2010-2011, uh, the way I, I dope it out, the Saudis were very counter-revolutionary in two when a monarchy was threatened, Bahrain, and in Egypt. They actually worked to try to dethrone or, or, or overthrow the established regime in two, Syria and Egypt. And in two, the, you know, categorizing them would be ambiguous. In Yemen, right, it was the GCC plan that eased Ali Abdullah Saleh out of the presidency. right. So that's not exactly counter-revolutionary. But then, of course, the Saudis intervened to try to prevent the Houthis, who one could argue were a revolutionary group from consolidating power, at least in the, in the western side of Yemen. And in Tunisia, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that His Excellency has left, I, I got the impression from his speech that it was the Emiratis who were more involved in, in, in helping the old order try to come back than the Saudis. And that, although I don't have uh, any inside information on this, I, my, my impression is that the Saudis really didn't care that much about Tunisia. So, it seems to me that diagnosing the root cause of the regional crisis as the weakening of state authority allows us to avoid an over-concentration on the sectarian element, right, which can lead to conclusions that are clouded with notions of primordialism. However, it does not present a particularly optimistic picture in terms of solutions to the crisis. Rebuilding state authority in Iraq and Syria and Yemen and Libya, not to mention Lebanon and Palestine and even parts of other Arab states where state authority is weak, like the Sinai, is, I would argue, a years-long task, and I have no idea how to do it. And I don't think anybody else has a really good idea of how to do it. And what the historical literature and most of the political science literature would tell us is it, it, it would be a violent process. Unfortunately, I think as many of the speakers have, I agree with many of the speakers on this, unfortunately I think the most likely regional scenario over the next decade is continued civil conflict abetted by regional and international actors playing out their own balance of power struggles. Thank you. It's, it's always a problem to, go, to follow Greg, who's such a good speaker, and today he also double-crossed me by wearing a tie, and I'm not wearing a tie, so. <laughs> I feel particularly disadvantaged. But I want to start by, by thanking the organizers for inviting me, but also on a very personal note, I would like to uh, also thank Aslan Lori here, 
who actually went out of the way to organize a letter in my support when I had my travails with the unnamed, unnamed, unnamed government somewhere in the Middle East. Um, so Turkish foreign policy, which I'm going to talk about, you will see by the time I get to the end, we'll talk about foreign policy, um, is befuddling. Um, at, at least to most people who are watching it, and as I can assure you, everybody in Washington uh, is asking the same question as to what it is that's going on in Turkey, what is it that the Turks will do. And if you read the papers here or in Turkey, uh, you almost think that the two biggest armies of NATO are about to get involved in a clash in, over Mumbich in, uh, in Syria. And, um, and again, if you read the Turkish press, uh, the number one enemy Turkey has is the United States. It is the United States that gives arms to the Kurds, supposedly missiles that blow up Turkish tanks, um, that's trying to divide uh, Turkey, and so on and so forth. But the diatribe, this horrible diatribe that we see in, in Turkey that's coming from both the government and the press is not only directed at, at the United States, it's also directed at the Europeans and with which you, uh, Turkey is increasingly having uh, trouble with. And uh, as I will point out, there were a couple of serious issues coming up between the two. Yet despite all of this, I'm not one of those who believes, who believes that uh, the Turkish and um, American military are about to fight each other in Mom Beach now or, or next month or, or six months from now. That is to say, I think in some ways uh, um, in, in Turkey, and Erdogan happens to be quite a pragmatic person who instrumentalizes, as you will see, foreign policy, the United States and Turkey will come up with some kind of uh, imaginative agreement that the Turks will turn, turn around and say, See, we, we achieved an, another victory. But all this craziness about, that we see about Turkish foreign policy, what is it really about? And I would argue, and I go back to Tip O'Neill who said, all politics is local. This is all about the consolidation of power in Turkey. First and foremost, that is his, what Erdogan is trying to do. All the bombastic statements, all the positioning that he's taking internationally has to do with what, is it, what he's trying to do at home, which is to re reconfigure in Turkish institutions, um, restructure Turkey, and yes, create essentially a one-person, a one-man uh, regime. And one, by the way, that in his mind will last at least, at least until 2033, if not, if not longer, should his health allow it to, be, to continue. And there are, explaining Erdogan is difficult in the sense that the Erdogan of the early years was different than the Erdogan of today. In 2003, when he came to power, he had a completely different approach to, to, to democracy, to foreign international relations, to Europe, uh, to especially domestic, um, domestic politics. And whether or not what we are seeing today was something that he had actually planned ahead of time and knew uh, what was going to happen remains, remains to be seen, and I really do not know. He hasn't confided in me, as you can imagine. Um, in, in, um, but so we are now seeing a process by which 
the Erdogan state is taking over um, all the in institutions. And yet he's doing this with an element of pragmatism and, and ruthlessness. ruthlessness. Um, but let me, I would like to, in terms of understanding the structure of the state that he's creating, it is important to, to also understand that where it is that he came from and what was his basis of power. And in fact, his basis of power are the Anatolian Tigers that Ishad talked about yesterday. They were not his creation. They were created by um, uh, Turgutuzal back in the late 80s, early and, and, and 90s when he was prime minister, uh, economic minister, prime minister, and then president. And if, essentially, the Anatolian Tigers are a critical component because when you look at Turkish politics, for the, for the pious, for the religious Turks, in fact, business was the only avenue in which the state did not prevent them from participating. In fact, in some ways, maybe even encourage them. It was the only place where they had complete freedom, and that's where they excelled. So by the time Erdogan came to power, you had a, um, a very strong, independent, capitalist, and yes, very capitalist sector that, were, that was com uh, composed of um, very religious uh, uh, business persons, but at the same time really believed in competition and believed in, in the marketplace. And that, that in of itself is the single most important building block of, of the Erdogan coalition. It, and everything else was built uh, on top of that. But it is important to understand that it, 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 it came into existence because that was the only place the, the, the pious could go. They couldn't go into the universities, they couldn't go into, into the bureaucracy, they couldn't go into many, many places. And also it was a place where they competed with the Istanbul-based large industries. The Anatolian Tigers were not huge businesses. They are now, but they were not when Erdogan took, uh, took over. But they were essentially competitors to the uh, industries that had emerged, in this, most in Istanbul, based on import substitution, et cetera. So, so this is um, the private sector was what Erdogan um, built his, 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 uh, his coalition on. And ironically, one of the most important collaborators of Erdogan in the private sector at the time was none other than Fethullah Gulen, who himself had created a, his own Anatolian Tigers, some of them amazingly successful businesses, right? But he also had another uh, um, uh, thing to offer Erdogan, and that was educated cadres, that because when Erdogan came to power, the one thing he lacked was that his party, which was a relatively new party, but came from essentially a, a, a very, um, from the National Salvation Party of uh, er Erbakan, when did not have the cadres. Gulen had educated cadres because he had also created the school system. So the two from this coalition uh, between the two, that was, again, uh, very powerful. And everything else that you see that Erdogan did in terms of economics, right, had to do with supporting the private sector in general, but these guys in particular. Start with the inf huge infrastructure projects. Yes, there were grandiose bridges, airports, and all kind of and stuff like that, but that helped 
consolidate that, that business element because a lot of the contracts went to people who were close to Gulen and, uh, and Erdogan. But still, and if you, know, if, if you look at four years into Erdogan's rule in 2007 and ask people, are you better off today than you were four years ago, the famous line, everybody would say yes. And economically speaking today, people are definitely much better off than they were in, two, in 2003. The Turkish economy has grown, and it is, by the way, still very dynamic, um, still very strong. But that doesn't mean it didn't have enemies, that Erdogan did not have enemies. The, I mean, and he was very cognizant of the fact that he had enemies, except that one of his enemies was the military, not exactly the smartest institution, which in 2007 decided to take him on, and and lost in the process. In 2007, when there were presidential elections, this uh, very uh, secularist uh, president was leaving, and Erdogan offered the position to his buddy, Abdullah Gül. The military said, uh-uh, for the very simple reason that Abdullah Gül's wife wears a headscarf. And imagine somebody with a headscarf sleeping in Ataturk's bed. Mm, that won't work. And so they challenged him, and he went four elections, and the elections were fought only on one issue, whether or not Abdullah Gül can become president, and the Turkish electorate voted overwhelmingly in a very convincing way, saying, yes, we want Abdullah Gül as president. But that was the moment in which military power in Turkey was broken. And in fact, from that point onwards, you see slowly Erdogan increasing his control over uh, other parts of, uh, of Turkish society, and, I'll, and uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. But in, in reality, there were three sources of opposition to him in Turkey left. If you put the military, oh my goodness. All right, I'm gonna move very fast. Three, um, the Gulenists, the Kurds, and the Alevis. But let me, let me move forward and essentially talk about what it is he's doing today. Because that's also important in terms of understanding where Turkey is going. He's now in the process of um, going institution after institution and taking them down. Let me start with the military. The military was defeated, as I said, in 2007. Yet, after the coup of, uh, of July 2016, he completely decimated the military. 149 generals and admirals were, were kicked out. That represents 46% of, the, gen, of the, uh, the generals and the admirals in Turkey. And yet that night, on the, uh, the night of the coup, there were only 9,000 soldiers on, on the streets. If you had 146 generals and admirals running a coup, I can assure you they would have had more soldiers out on, on, on the, and, the, and the coup would have been successful. They used, he used the coup essentially to decimate the military. And not just, by the way, the generals, but also all the staff officers in Turkey. I mean, in Turkey, you have the concept of staff officers. These are, these are officers that go to special um, education, special training, and they run essentially most military operations. So he got rid of them. The judiciary. Right? The judiciary has come completely under, under his control. The judiciary has now been used to, to basically arrest anybody Erdogan wants to arrested. I mean, even a ham sandwich can be indicted if you want tomorrow. But, but this is, I mean, just to give you a sense of how warped the situation has become. Four weeks ago, the Constitutional Court 
um, ordered the release of two journalists who had been in jail for now for over 500 years, uh, for the year, years, 500 days. It, sound, it sounds like it, right? <laughs> but so the Constitutional Court ordered the release. I don't know what happened to them, but they ordered the release. So what happened? A lower court overruled the Constitutional Court. I, mean, I don't know in which country in the world the lower court can, in, can, can overrule the Constitutional Court, but they did, and not a peep came out, essentially, from, from society. And the, uh, the civil society has been completely obliterated. And intelligentsia, NGOs have been taken down one by one. By one. Uh, the educational uh, system, same thing, between universities that have been cleansed of uh, any opponents uh, of, uh, of the regime. And by the way, the purges are continuing. Um, and then a new system of religious education is being introduced. The bureaucracy, 150,000 people have been fired. Um, and they're being, of course, being replaced by, by supporters. The press, whether it's electronic or print, is now completely controlled by, by, by Erdogan. I mean, those of you who do the Middle East, I mean, you, you would not be surprised. I mean, it's, it's, the choice, by the way, is, especially Middle East um, academic, people do, American academics who do work on the Middle East, you really have a choice between the Saddam press and Sean Hannity 24-7. Uh, I mean, that's all that is of the press now left in Turkey. That's, it, it is really very, very difficult to, to deal. The electoral system. The electoral system has um, been, uh, is being manipulated. And I'll, I'll show you again. State ideology is being replaced, the Kemalist ideology, not that the Kemalist ideology was my favorite, but is now being replaced. Uh, um, parliament is also has become more sidelined. Now, the thing to understand is that Turkey had always institutions before that. I mean, there were institutions in Turkey. They were not, whether it's the military or the bureaucracy or the educational system, it, they were not perfect institutions. Yet, they were very predictable. You knew what the boundaries were. You knew that if you were Kurd or somebody uh, pious, you had certain limits, and you'd make sure you didn't move out of those. What Erdogan has done is essentially eliminated all that predictability of institutions and replaced them essentially with his whim. And you see that, I mean, even his own party has been decimated. All the grandees that created the party with him, the Abdullah Gürs, et cetera, have always all been, been, uh, been, been sidelined. So, so what we're moving towards is this one person but why is he doing all of this? I mean, in one sense, you can say he's power hungry, et cetera, et cetera. But the irony is that something happened in January, uh, in April of last year, and that was the constitutional referendum. The, the referendum that was essentially, is essentially designed to enshrine his, his, his absolute power, if you want. In the run-up to, um, to, to the referendum, you could not militate against the referendum. You could not have meetings about it, against it. You can have as many meetings for it in support, of course. And yet, despite this amazing state control and pressure, 
he technically won it, according to official figures, by 51 to 49%. But in reality, he lost it. He lost it because he, they, there was huge voter irregularities, people voting many times in certain regions, and so on. I'm not going to go into details, but there's even actually a very good academic study that actually statistically shows that, yes, he lost it. Not by a huge margin, but he lost it. So if he, with all this control he has, if he lost it, he is feeling very insecure. Right. And this is where I, I, I'll bring in foreign policy, because foreign policy in Turkey, especially on the Erdogan, and especially today, has been instrumentalized in order to, uh, to, to, to solidify his, what he thinks is his weakened um, uh, position in society. The war against the Kurds in, in Syria. Now, at some point, I mean, Turkey does have genuine security concerns with what's happening in Syria. Turkey has a Kurdish problem, right? And a Kurdish problem that Erdogan at one point tried to solve and then decided that uh, to give up on it because of what happened in Kobani. We can talk about that later. But the issue is, if you're looking at, it, at, at what's going on in Syria from the perspective of Ankara, you need to be worried. Because you have already have a, a federal state in Iraq, uh, admittedly much smaller today after the referendum than, than it was before. But you already have one federal state. And with the Syrian Kurds clearly moving towards some kind of federation, right? now that makes two federal regions south of your border. And what's next? So, so in that sense, snuffing out the Kurdish experiment, especially because the YPG was created by the PKK. It is a PKK creation, even though there is some autonomy, not very much, um, from the PKK. Nonetheless, this is, from, from, I can understand from Ankara's perspective that this is a, an existential threat. Now, he had other options of dealing with this, but he decided not, not to choose them, so not, not, to, not to go there. So, what he's doing now is using the Afrin operation essentially to complete, if you want, that control over society. Because he is facing presidential and parliamentary elections a year from now in 2019. He may bring them up for, uh, earlier if he, if he chooses to. But the, the, but the Afrin operation is purely for domestic purposes in reality. Yes, there is a security concerns, but it is being done in order to galvanize, you know, it's really one of these wag the dog type, uh, type, type of operations. I, I'm running out of time, so let me just say, but that is not the first time Erdogan has used foreign policy for domestic purposes. He did it before. But it was in a much more, if you want, partially much more benign, benign way. The zero problems with the neighbors policy of the early years, which was essentially a major break with previous Turkish foreign policy, was nonetheless a, an interesting experiment. One of his best buddies was uh, none other than Bashar al-Assad in, in, that, in that process. It doesn't, didn't get him very far. But the, the point is that he, that's telling me I'm done, but. <laughs> so I didn't have to. Use, um, so this is not the first. But what I want to leave you with is that the next 
iteration of Recep Tayyip Erdogan is going to be in foreign policy. That is to say, Greg talked at one point about, I was listening to you, Greg, um, talked about uh, the, the balance of power, that fight between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia. What I would argue is once Erdogan consolidates at home, you will be talking about a three-way balance of power struggle in the Middle East because Erdogan has skin in the Middle East. But that, even that, I would argue, in his own megalomaniac way, is a step into uh, much grander territory, which is the international scene. He, he has been hinting over and over about the role Turkey should play internationally. He thinks the UN Security Council should be re restructured. Uh, he keeps saying, the world is greater than five, he says that. And, of course, in his mind, Turkey should be a, a, per, a permanent member. So this is only a step in, in, in the process. So you will see a great deal more down the road from Erdogan in foreign policy, but at the moment, it's all about domestic politics. It's all about consolidating power. Thank you. So I am at a distinct disadvantage in so many respects. I never wear a tie, so I was already in bad shape. Uh, I didn't anticipate speaking at this conference. Uh, as you may imagine, when we organized a panel on regional and international dimensions, we had hoped to have someone speak to Iran, uh, which was what, the first participant who was not able to join us. We then replaced him with a second participant who promised to speak of transborder implications and patterns in the rise of civil conflict, and he too had to drop out. Uh, and then even our discussant originally planned, who was an Iran expert, was had to drop out. And so we reconfigured yesterday uh, the plan for how we would fill out this panel, and I was asked to speak to international law, a topic that many of you don't care about. So it's a series of disadvantages that are really significant, capped by the fact that the talk was written last night after way too much wine, few calories, and um, I have no idea if it's 20 minutes or not because I've not had an opportunity to find out. So let's just, let's just see how it goes. Um, also, many of you know me, Nathan has left now, but I have co-authors amongst some um, in the room as someone who normally speaks about Turkey, which of course um, I would have been very much outclassed, so I'm glad at least not to have that burden. But ordinarily I'm speaking to groups that work on the Middle East about comparative law, because of a series of projects that I've done in comparative law with uh, typically with political scientists and comparative politics. Um, so this is just new terrain in some respects. Uh, but I do think it's interesting to think about international law and the dimension that it is for the region, often because we don't, often because it's completely excluded and that's for a number of reasons. On the international law side, not unlike actually um, political science, at least when I was being trained in political science at, at Princeton in the early 2000s, uh, the Middle East region is treated as completely exceptional, almost to the point that it's not worth studying. So if you propose Middle East-related panels at the American Society of International Law, they're almost always declined. There isn't a lot we can learn, and this is because there's no regional institution in the MENA. So unlike the European Union, Organization of American States, African Union, it's not institutionalized with interstate um, institutions in quite the same way. Even ASEAN uh, outperforms the League of Arab States by a very wide margin. Uh, there's very low participation in multilateral agreements uh, in the international system. There are no significant regional trade agreements. There's a limited impact of international environmental frameworks. So in other words, the MENA region is just seen as a kind of uh, area that's not pe really penetrated by multilateral international institutional norm uh, production. 
What I want to say in this uh, talk is that actually the region is not only deeply penetrated by international law framings, it is increasingly significant to reshaping the core regime of the international legal order, namely the international security order. And it is so because, in my view, there's a real turning point in the 1990s. And I'm going to use some terms loosely here, so I hope you, um, you know, forgive me for that, but we can talk about them in Q&A if interested. But I view this because international law, to my mind, has been and remains the handmaiden of imperial orderings. And I think a new imperial ordering came into play globally in the 1990s, but its focal point was the Middle East. And by, because of the role of international law as a handmaiden, it therefore has followed that the Middle East has been actually preeminent, to my mind, in the emergence of new regimes in international law. So how is public international law handmaiden of imperial orderings? So some of this is just the bread and butter of international law. Colonialism, colonization was made possible by a set of sovereignty doctrines that were endorsed and legitimated by international legal framings. So the colonial past, of course, of the region was marked uh, directly by international agreements, of course, entirely by external actors, and that gave way to a mandate system, once again, endorsed by the then principal international ordering of that period, the League of Nations, and then that gave way again, following the Second World War, to the international legal order we are in today, a post-war order authored almost entirely by the United States in a series of exceptional conferences between 1945 and 1948 that gave shape to the institutional structure that certainly defines the security order and its principal international legal characteristics, and those are the contemporary sovereignty regime, not the one that colonialism depended on, but the new one enshrined in the United Nations Charter, which uh, internalizes basic principles, including the control of the state over its domestic jurisdiction, so basic uh, exclusive control of the nation state domestically, and a doctrine of non-intervention so long as certain conditions are met, so, so long as the state doesn't engage in aggression, it is entitled to a shield of non-intervention as a function of sovereignty, and then the innovation of a human rights regime, or a regime that basically uh, universalizes certain minimum core behavior for states and implicitly creates another condition for sovereignty. We'll come to that uh, in a moment. But the sovereignty regime, if that's one defining feature of the charter, the UN system that defines the international security order, the other is the use of force regime, which was premised on the prohibition on non-defensive use of force, so prohibition on uh, aggressive warfare, and uh, collective security, so a model through which the UN Security Council was created, which would make judgments about threats to international peace and security, all part of a security architecture designed to avert the cataclysms of the first half of the 20th century, the two world wars, not really thinking as much about conflict at the periphery, primarily concerned with preventing conflict at the core. And the fundamental system put in place here then, which gives way to the Cold War, meant that on the one hand, you had, of course, widespread intervention, but it was primarily covert, and you had a tremendous a role for proxy conflict, so connecting back once again to Mark's presentation from our first panel, that were the expressions of international rivalries that took indirect form through alliances, proxies, and models of indirect rule that nonetheless were correlated with a kind of imperial order of that period. The end of the Cold War, the 1990s, the turning point that I would claim turns the Middle East into a focal point brought to an end the international rivalry expression of that international security order. You had the end of bipolarity, the rise of unipolarity, and actually a, a moment of tremendous optimism in the 1990s, the notion that collective security, the UN Security Council model, had been liberated from bipolar shackles, that there was an era afoot to realize human rights and humanitarian potential of the international order as it was defined in the post-war period. And many remember the 1990s in this way, a reinvigoration of civil society, human rights movements, transnational networks, NGO explosion, et cetera. 
the birth of some kind of a progressive international order with new major multilateral initiatives, the Oslo peace process for the region, and so forth. So I would say we should pick up here to think about in what way is the MENA a focal point for the emergence of a new kind of public international law ordering, and I would argue that that ordering shows the resilience of forms of interventionism that had been more characteristic of the earlier orders I spoke of, the colonial mandate orders and so forth, and a return of a kind of earlier dynamic to the region. So first, the recollection of the 1990s uh, as a moment for the reinvigoration of collective security turns, of course, on a reading of the Iraq intervention of 1991 as liberating that potential. But there are other readings available of that uh, conflict, and at least one that's notable is that the Security Council became instrumentalized in a unipolar moment for a new structure of intervention in which costs were much more widely dispersed for the pursuit of objectives nonetheless still defined in an imperial fashion, by the United States that set the objectives and anybody who followed the 1990-91 run up to that war and remembers the ways in which the United Nations was used and the threats that were made to countries that are, were on the Security Council and to the Secretary General at the time, Javier Perez de Cuellar, any time there was an attempt to slow the progression towards conflict, you might immediately recognize that as resonant, although it's a, a past that we don't actually remember often when we think of that war. It also initiated in the immediate aftermath of the conflict a completely novel doctrine of siege warfare. So we're now very accustomed to thinking of these totalizing UN sanctions packages. Until that time, sanctions had been deployed in a variety of different ways in the Cold War context, but never in a way that basically flattened and devastated an entire economy and put an international organization or any other external power in charge of basic subsistence requirements of a population such that you had a humanitarian program that set caloric uh, goals and targets for meeting uh, the basic uh, just survival needs of a population prior to that. So we had the creation of something that had been actually evacuated previously from war. We had, a, had at the end of the 19th century a sort of criminalization of this kind of siege warfare, which now returned but in a totally different doctrinal fashion, fully legitimated by the new uh, collective security mechanisms that had been created. Now this is to me the more telling picture of the 1990s in the Middle East, a time when the United States was both proclaiming a new world order and describing the need for a two and a half theater military doctrine that would enable them to become more agile and more, um, more cost efficient essentially in managing international security priorities. And then at the end of the decade comes the framing of the global war on terror, which comes to be the ideological substitute in some ways for what we had had in place in the Cold War. And through that global war on terror framing, the region is constructed as the incubator of threat that generates the principal sort of organizational notions of how international collective security is going to be structured. And so we have an enormous counterterrorism machinery that gets created again through the United Nations system, and that has both enormous financial uh, implications for the way that the region conducts its own um, transactions, but also, of course, tremendously important military implications. So now I just want to turn to just four episodes that illustrate the ways in which the region has served as a zone legal, international legal innovation, experimentation, and at times exception, but frequently exceptions that redefine the rules. So it's been a, what we would call in the uh, law world a jurisgenerative uh, region for the production of new ways of thinking about uh, international law. First, the Iraq War of 2003. So this war, of course, reflected a basic violation of the charter system. So it was a 
plainly a war of aggression that was made very clear in the debates in the Security Council and in the resistance that it encountered from the international system. Competing rationales were offered, though, for the war, legal rationales by the United States and its coalition allies, including models of preventive war, including the notion that proliferation of weapons of mass destruction gave rise to a, a collective international right of intervention, uh, and also including the idea that humanitarianism might be a, a valid rationale for moving forward with uh, a regime change intervention. And what began to occur, notwithstanding the rejection of the basic premise on, the, uh, on which the Bush administration proceeded with the war was a shift in the standards on the prohibition of non-defensive force, first because the hegemonic and actor in the system, indeed the author of the rules, had come to directly and explicitly challenge those constraints. So that was first. And secondly, because a precedent was set, notwithstanding the resistance from other UN Security Council members um, apart from the UK, a precedent that was set that was actually available to those same permanent members of the Security Council to avail themselves of either in the name of some strategic objective they may be pursuing, see for example Russia and Georgia uh, some years later, or even on behalf of their allies or on behalf of their own spheres of influence and orderings in those spheres. So the requirement of going through the Security Council in order to secure authorization, the sort of promise that the 1990s had uh, provided of collective security began to collapse at this moment. And then you see not just Russia, but you also see, for example, elective uh, interventions by the French in Cote d'Ivoire and in the Central African Republic on rationales that are offered, certainly, but without any attempt to secure prior authorization either from the collective security mechanism or otherwise satisfy basic international legal standards of the use of force regime. This is for direct intervention, right? So again, I, I'm not purporting that that international legal order had prevented various forms of intervention in an earlier period, but now the rules that empowered the permanent members were being directly challenged by the permanent members themselves. Uh, the next episode that I think is of interest is the Libya intervention of 2011. I've written and spoken about this. This is probably the one place where my international law interests have most conspicuously collided with work on the Middle East, and folks have heard me speak about this uh, previously, so I'll just briefly review that. This was the first instance of the UN Security Council authorizing collective military action. Other kinds of action had been previously authorized relying on this doctrine. This doctrine sort of realizes the idea that human rights themselves are also a condition of sovereignty of some kind. And so rather than finding a threat to international peace and security, which had previously been thought to be the predicate for a Chapter 7 collective security authorization by the Security Council, here the Council pointed to the failure of the Libyan regime to protect the humanitarian welfare of the civilian population within their own territory, and the threat that the regime posed to the civilian population as itself sufficient grounds for the Security Council to invoke collective security. So that's actually a substantial accretion of authority to the Council. It is a substantial diminution of the constraints on non-defensive uses of force that are permissible. Uh, and it was celebrated widely at that time because of the view of what was happening on the ground in Libya. But it also had other important characteristics. Many other states, again, I don't need to tell uh, this audience this, were experiencing very similar circumstances on the ground at that moment. And so one thing that's clearly um, distinctive about that decision to authorize collective security on R2P responsibility to protect grounds by the Security Council is how selective the choice was. And that selectivity was driven again by, I believe, the imperial order in which the Council's actions are embedded. 
Second, the expansive definition of, author, of the authorization itself. Many people think that the coalition actors exceeded what they had been authorized to do. Actually, the drafting of the Security Council resolution enabled that, I mean, it exceeded the goals that had been set by at least some other actors on the council, but it didn't exceed the letter of the law. The resolution actually allowed for a very expansive set of goals to be pursued and didn't really limit the parts of the country in which that might be the case or the circumstances under which force might be used. And also notable is the looting of the assets of the regime, the freezing of those assets, and then the subsequent looting of those assets, again, through Security Council action that froze the assets and then selectively unfroze them in a variety of ways that empowered actors on the ground after the fact. There is a certain irony here that I do want to point to, which is that the window of opportunity for reintroducing what was something like a traditional civilizing intervention, if you want, a humanitarian intervention in which external actors entered to rescue the underlying civilian population was made possible by a moment in which the population itself was embodying popular sovereignty through an uprising to resist a framework with which they had found themselves sort of burdened because of other earlier formations in the region that had basically frozen circumstances in Libya. So there is something quite striking about the circumstance that gave rise to this reauthorization of humanitarian framings for intervening. That doctrine, in some ways, is allegedly discredited now. Many people will say what happened, the fact that it was turned into a regime change intervention means no one will invoke the responsibility protect again. I would really say never say never. Let's be a little more uh, mindful of the long durée, to borrow uh, Toby's framings from earlier. Uh, we have a very, very long record of allegedly, purportedly humanitarian interventions, particularly in this region, and the notion that that doctrine will not be available as a precedent after, the, after what happened in Libya simply because of the particular uh, conjuncture of the moment in which that is now frowned upon because of, of course, the consequences on the ground, particularly for the civilian population in Libya, I think is um, extraordinarily naive. So I think that's actually a very important precedent that has expanded, once again, the possibilities of use of force in the region. The next of, and I've said four episodes, so the third I will go to are the Syria red lines that emerged in 2013 and again in 2017. So the Obama administration essentially innovated a doctrine in which they purported to offer legal rationales for unilateral strikes grounded in their judgments about apparent violations of core international law norms, which they themselves designated to be core. So the prohibition on the use of chemical weapons was sort of defined as if it were a use Kogan's norm, some kind of essential characteristic of the international order, the violation of which would uh, automatically give rise to a legitimate justification for the use of force. Of course, until that time, the US was on, present on the ground already in Syria, but as has already been noted, that was at least allegedly by invitation, in this case, the invitation of the Iraqi government to cope with trans-border elements of the, what had then emerged as ISIS, but had previously already been operating under various different guises, and the Iraqis' request that the United States act in collective self-defense together with the Iraqis had been the basis, and the United States had been careful not to target regime forces and not to target regime assets. Here, the notion was that regime assets could be directly targeted, not on that kind of an argument, but rather on this new idea about how collective self-defense might be invoked simultaneously with vital national security interests, which actually tied back to the WMD rationale from the 2003 Iraq War, which again repudiated as illegitimate, but actually stands as a precedent that echoes systematically through ways in which Syria has been framed uh, in, in you know, a decade later. Uh, so the Obama administration, of course, ends up not operationalizing its self-defense rationale, largely for domestic reasons, because there's 
uh, no support. Uh, Obama feels the political need for domestic reasons to go to Congress and is unable to get the support necessary and so shelves that plan. But it's resurrected in 2017 with April 6 strikes by the Trump administration, which offered no legal argument, but clearly relied on those that have been provided by the predecessor. And actually, and this is the more interesting element than the legal argument, is drew international praise for its strikes. So unilateral strikes, uh, engaged in without even offering a rationale and without really very much knowledge about what had been targeted, at least ex ante, by those who were praising almost immediately the strikes, set, really demonstrates the degree to which the sort of um, dial has shifted on questions of use of force unilaterally by the U.S., where just a decade earlier, there seemed to be a, a broad international repudiation of the ability to offer these kinds of rationales for direct strikes. Now that has clearly faltered. Uh, as was seen by the use of this kind of unilateral doctrine. And then the fourth I will point to is a kind of combination of what Bahrain and Yemen jointly reflect, which is uh, the ways in which stealth engagement and support for proxies and regional allies is shifting international humanitarian law standards of accountability. Now this again is a little bit in the weeds of international law if you like, but the U.S. has participated directly in supporting two military interventions in the region, the Bahraini intervention uh, by the uh, Saudis and their coalition, and then there is even more direct evidence of U.S. participation in the Saudi and Emirati action in Yemen. That is much more than sufficient to meet the international humanitarian law criteria for making the United States a party to that conflict. So what is the nature of the assistance? Intelligence support, logistical support, aerial refueling, deployment of military personnel and joint planning cells in Riyadh, use of drones for live intelligence feeds for targeting purposes. All of this would make, for international humanitarian law purposes, the United States a party that is also then responsible for, for judgments that are being made about targeting, you know, whether or not precautionary measures are being taken with respect to civilians and so on. But this is not the way that the United States characterizes its participation. For domestic purposes, there's a threshold of what counts as hostilities, and both the Obama administration, who initiated this support, by the way, this is not part of a Trump administration story about uh, sort of license to the Saudis at all. This is an Obama administration um, uh, approach. For U.S. purposes, the administration claimed that the level of hostilities in U.S. participation does not rise to the threshold for the domestic legal definition of hostilities, and they've extended that argument to the international plane. So this is instead viewed as an expansion. It's a direct military intervention, but for the United States, it's an expansion of counterterrorism strategy that is backstopping a full-scale indirect war, but is disclaiming any United States accountability for that war, and is actually, I think, a reflection of, and here I do think that the international law story uh, meets and converges with the international politics story, what we see is a shift back to a model, the one that we saw in the Cold War, of sort of offshore balancing, if you want to use the IR realist sort of uh, theoretical language, but essentially a circumstance in which the cost for engaging in intervention have been lowered as a diplomatic matter and as a literal material matter through a series of strategies that have made counterterrorism or that war on terror framing a kind of all-encompassing means for authorizing a host of different kinds of actions. And of course, for a variety of reasons, the U.S.'s own interest is in having those actions involve the fewest possible American boots on the ground to limit blowback and accountability domestically in the United States while still pursuing the, the interventionist aims with international legal cover. And I think that the United States, the argument that the United States has withdrawn from the Middle East, which was sort of the framing of what the Obama administration has done and the Trump administration has sort of continued, I think is mistaken. I think the United States remains not only a very significant actor on the ground, maybe the principal Sunni sectarian actor on the ground, to be honest, but also 
a very systematic player in almost all of these conflicts, but it does so now in a way not like the covert wars of the Cold War, not like the form of offshore balancing that we saw in the Cold War, but actually something quite different that relies on an international law paradigm to justify it and reaps enormous benefits for imperial ordering purposes. I just have one more thing to say about international law. This has all been about top-down, couldn't be more macro above. What has the region offered from below? Is there any other story to tell? And actually, I think there's a very, very inter interesting story to tell. It informs how I teach human rights now at this law school here at UCLA. I believe that the Arab uprisings, a dimension that is missed in many accounts, upended not only a lot of what the conventional way of comparative politics teaching about the region and this kind of you know, sleeping publics or inert publics incapable of absence, total absence of civil society. So I mean, like putting aside the civil society concept, that language is often used to imagine an inert public basically completely disempowered by the, in, in the face of pervasive authoritarianism. That story makes no sense after the Arab uprisings, whatever one, one might say about their fate or their faltering. Uh, but it's not only that public stood up and resisted, it's that they used very specific languages. And those languages pointed to something long contested in human rights, namely the indivisibility of human rights. So what were the framings? Dignity, social justice, <coughs> bread. These were, it wasn't liberté, égalité, fraternité, right? It wasn't the like fundamental mooring that the international human rights scheme has in a set of revolutionary uh, discourse, discursive practices that are drawn from the French and American experiences. It was a different new set of discursive practices that pointed to a different ordering of priority as amongst human rights norms and really brought to the fore several that are largely ignored. I mean, in all the transitology and rule of law work and human rights advocacy that you see, you have almost no economic and social right formations that, I mean, Human Rights Watch as a, as a classic example or amnesty are totally focused on civil and political rights. That is what they do that might get them to corruption. It certainly does get them to torture and dignity in the sense of police action, but it doesn't address what was being described in a human rights language intuitively by people on the ground as being directly tied to their immiseration, namely the economic and social rights realities with which they were faced. And I think that also puts on the table interlinkages with issues, for example, between human rights and environment as a classic trope that, and one that emerged in the uprisings that have long been evacuated. I began by saying, you know, the region doesn't participate in multilateral international environmental treaties, and that's pretty much all there has been to say about it. I think there's a lot more that can be said, and that's a story about understanding international law, or at least what these sort of framings enable uh, people to use and deploy when it's adopted by groups on the ground. Thanks so much for indulging me for an international uh, presentation.